Yes. Making a reveal. Making a reveal. spent my childhood in the 80s. So I missed out on the cocaine culture and sort of the wretched excess. I kind of watched it from the safe distance of the schoolyard. But I also watched every horror movie I could get my little hands on. And uh, though they scared me then, I grew to really enjoy them and find them amusing. And now, reaching towards my midlife, I look back on those 80s horror films with genuine love. So, this week, regular guest Lee Beckman and your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons are going to take a hard look at the 80s. Each of us picked three movies to review from the decade, and each of us are going to rank our top 25 genre pictures of the 1980s. This may take a couple of episodes to get done, but I think it will be worthwhile. As usual, you can expect spoilers and coarse language for the movie reviewed, and as usual, you can send feedback to rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Also, seek out the show on Facebook and on iTunes. And please tell that other movie fan in your life about Rank and Review. And now, we travel back in time to the 80s. So, Mr. Lee Beckman... You're practically the co-host of this podcast with the number of episodes that you've done now. You never seem to tire doing the show. I love having you. Welcome back to my filthy garage. Long time listener, first time caller, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. You've been here a lot. But that's good. Uh, I like having somebody who is equally nerdy and up to the task and like you bring notes, you do some research, you come prepared. I, I, I love it. I, I just can't quit you. <laughs> just can't quit you, brother. Yeah. Uh, here's the thing. We're going to talk about the 80s today. Yo. And you and I are children of the 80s. Yo. And you and I are of a generation, you know, with a little bit longer attention span than the young youngins we have today. Instead of growing up on YouTube, we grew up on VHS tapes of really inappropriate movies. Yeah. On making this list that, that I've come up with, we're doing a top 25 of our favorite 80s movies, as well as doing six reviews of six of our personal favorites. Genre horror movies. Yeah. If we're, if we're talking 80s, I'll make this clear. Yeah. Yeah. I wanna, uh, this is horror. There's uh, only a couple of items on the list where I stray a little bit, maybe, arguably from horror. We can talk about them when we get there. But they're movies that I just couldn't leave off the list for whatever reason. And... They're going, to, they're going to be personal lists. I have the feeling that Lee and I are going to do some scrapping this episode. Uh, I, I'm curious because I, I know you're going to go off the board. Yeah. There was one discussion about Predator, but I don't want to get into that right now. Right. Anyways. We'll get Anyways. We'll get to it. No, I'm excited. I know how this started, too. Uh, I remember when you had, you were actually visiting me, and, you, and we got on the topic of decades of horror. 
and you went on the best one. You showed me that list from IMDb, and at first I called bullshit, but then I read the list and went, yeah, that's, that's really good. That's that. That's really good. Yeah, really good. And then you showed me the '90s, and I was like, Ooh. yeah, I have uh, on IMDb posted a top yeah. 100 horror movies of the '80s. Yeah, listed under alt film fan. If anyone wants to look at the list, yeah, yeah. And I have a list of the top 100 of the '90s, and the list, much like the list we're talking about today, yeah. is somewhat arbitrary. I'm not 100% on the order of it, but these are 100 horror movies from the '80s. If you're a horror movie fanatic that I yeah. think for good or ill we're probably worth taking a look at or that made yeah. an impression upon me yeah. and at that very impressionable age uh, AIDS? At that very mm-hmm. impressionable age in See, the what 80s, you me, I was uh, subjected to a lot of movies that terrified me and yeah. yet imprinted on my brain. I think part of the reason that I so love genre movies to this day yeah. is because I found them way too young mm-hmm. and I didn't have enough adult supervision apparently yeah. <laughs> to, to protect me from them. Um, the 80s were the age of not just horror movies, but generally speaking, fun horror movies. Yes. And the golden age, as far as I'm concerned, of prosthetic makeup effects. You, I've already realized I've missed putting a movie that you're going to put on your list. <laughs> I just figured something out. <laughs> so, oh. Well, again, we don't know what each other's list is. That's part of the exciting thing about this. Ad, I've, I've been waiting episode. for this for like, since we came up with, well, you, essentially you came up with this idea. <laughs> This moment, oh well, no, I missed it. Okay, no, never mind. I'm that's speaking in codes now. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, no, I remember you talking, showing me this list. Here's the thing: I looked at the '90s list again, and what people found scary in the '80s changed in the '90s because '90s was all about '90s was all about the psychopath or the serial killer more than anything. There are monster movies, um, so the '90s, what people found scary was different from the '80s and the '90s. I've yeah. noticed that. Uh, way more monster movies and way more remakes in the uh, 80s. I think it's interesting of the movies that we're reviewing, and yeah. since we both picked three of them, this was all accidental. Yeah. Half of them are remakes. That's interesting. Fun fact, everybody. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Some of the movies overcome the fact that they are set in the sort of gaudy pastel age glitter of the 80s, you know. Yeah. Ladies have ridiculous hair sometimes. The style and the music can be very distracting. Yeah. But there's also a weird specificity about an 80s movie, specifically like 80s slasher movies. They just have this flavor about them that is just very palatable to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, people are enjoying sort of a renaissance in that as sort of a tip of the hat of like mm-hmm. movies that are styled to be 80s-like, but mm-hmm. there's nothing quite like the real deal, if you ask me. <laughs> Anyways, I think we've teased this enough. Okay, well, I'm just going to quickly say the six movies that we will eventually end up getting to yes. review yes. this episode. We're going to take a look at Stanley Kubrick's uh, adaptation of Stephen King's arguably one of his best works The Shining adaptation is a generous word <laughs> yeah, we're going to look at the John Carpenter remake of The Thing Yo. we're going to look at James Cameron's sequel to Ridley Scott's classic Alien Aliens plural and this is uh, and then controversial is it a horror movie? We yes oh absolutely I can't you. believe you, you even asked that <laughs> yes, shame on you David Cronenberg's remake of The Fly. I talked yeah. about this episode in the third episode of Rank and Review with my friend and the uh, one-time Rank and Review champion, Karen Giese. So yes, we're also going to talk about David Cronenberg's take on The Fly. Yes. Um, speaking of amazing prosthetic effects. Yo. Um, another one, speaking of amazing prosthetic effects, we have the remake of The Blob. Yo. Uh, from Chuck Russell and Frank Darabont. Mm. 
And lastly, the, and the most 80s and probably purely nostalgic pick of the bunch for me, The Lost Boys, ah. from much maligned uh, director Joel Schumacher. L- Larry, do you say hello to the night? <laughs> are you lost in the shadows? These are six 80s horror movies say on top of to us ranking our top 25 of the greatest decade for horror cinema in my lifetime so far. Here we are, Mr. Beckman, uh, in our, well, we'll go from like 25 to 20th, at the bottom of our, our, our top 25 list. Yep. It's going to be a weird format. We're doing a little bit different type of style of show, so I'll just start off brazenly. Yep. What was your 25th ranked horror <laughs> movie of the 80s and why? Well, Larry, well, at number 25, I put Ken Russell's fucking insane classic. Not Animal Classic, that's a little bold. But this movie's too crazy to not put on the list. Like you've got, got to just put it on there, and that's Altered States. Nice. Which is, nice which is William Hurt's actually screen debut as well. It is a movie that... It, it, it works in a lot of ways. The effects are somewhat dated. This yeah. is the first, you know, the first time they had that sort of exploding, or not exploding, moving skin prosthetics. Nice. Um... But yeah, it, William Hurt's really good in this movie, and this movie is crazy. Yeah, he's like goes into deprivation crank, and yeah. fills his head full of LSD, yeah. and starts tripping out. Or does he physically change? Or what yeah. is what are we seeing? What is real? What is not? Yeah, this is movie's more science fiction than I think in horror. Yeah. In a I was gonna say our first sort of genre argument. So I I already get one strike when you call bullshit on the first pick that I have. That's not quite a horror movie. Yeah. I will say yeah. Well, you used Altered States. States. Uh, so Altered really... States is a very interesting movie. Yeah. I didn't include it in my list so there's our first uh, difference I guess so Alrighty. okay but there you go for me in 25th place is actually a movie we're going to be talking about on the list Joel Schumacher's Just The Lost Boys <laughs> um, you know uh, I'll talk about it in more detail when we get to the review okay. I think it's a lot of fun yeah. but I don't necessarily think that it's amazing either the cast but saved that movie as far as I'm concerned it's one of the most 80s 80s movies ever well, it has, like, I think it has the quintessential 80s scene yeah. but we'll so, talk about uh, it yeah The Lost Boys is it amazing? no but I love it a lot and it's sort of you know representing for me uh, that whole corner of 80s sort of vampire fun yeah. movies vamp fright night uh, yeah. there's more seriously toned ones like Near Dark that I you know would love to you know, be talking yeah. about as well but like yeah, uh, that's my big 80s vampire movie that I'm including, and it's at the bottom of the list. Okay. 25. What's in 24th position? Well, I've seen better killer doll movies that have also <laughs> come out of the 80s, but I would be remiss. I mean, I do enjoy it, and they tried it to do, you know, they were serious for the, at least the first one, but they at number 24. It's fucking child's play. Chucky. Don't, don't fuck with the Chuck. Yeah. Um, it, I mean... Is it overly terrifying? No. Is it entertaining? Yes. Yeah. Um, I always like to see uh, what's his name. Get, of course, I forget his name now. Ah. Brad Dorf. Brad Dorf get 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 some work. Yeah, and he mainly does the voice. I think for me and the Chucky franchise, which I want to reintroduce myself to because I haven't seen a lot of them in a long time. I've mm-hmm. sort of been collecting the franchise to sort of do a well, franchise review. It's funny that you point. mentioned that because I was thinking of the next series. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, we'll, we'll get there. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
I'm not scared of Chucky. A lot of no. people find the idea of the, the doll really scary. I think yeah. the concept of the story is scary. Yeah. I don't necessarily think the execution. Yes. It's interesting. That's the second movie on your list that is not included on mine at all. There Chucky you did go. not win place or show for me. Yeah. I understand it's definitely made an impression for certain, a lot of people. A lot of people See, don't like, like I, that okay. idea yeah, of yeah, that yeah, doll yeah. that comes to life really yeah. fucking scares people. No. It's, it's more like the, the serial killer is funny and he's acting out. Okay. So, uh, okay. Yeah. So you get, I gave you Altered States. Yeah. I'm going to ask you to give me the Road Warrior. In 24th position, I sort of put, I wanted to represent. Well, just by that, yeah, just by that law, yeah, okay, Road Warrior. It's a post-apocalyptic movie. It's much more sci-fi than horror, but it is very horrifying. The villains are very rapey and very, very violent. The stakes are very high, and it's a movie that I associate with one of the first movies I discovered as a kid way too young mm -hmm. that I watched the shit out of that sort of shaped my taste for genre cinema, mm -hmm. and part of me wanted to include it here. I almost wanted to make it one of the movies that we actually talked about on the list, but... Uh, I'd be down if you wanted to do a Mad Max show, but... Um, yeah. I mean, just by... Well, I know how you d would defend it. Yeah, there are hor horrific elements to it. I would call this definitely an action, action film. Thriller, sort of um, I mean, it's thrilling. Yeah. Uh, the, the chase scenes alone are awesome. And yes, the, if I was of, to rank it in my favorite movies, period. Some of the villains are scary looking. I'll give you that. Yeah. Um, the Jason Voorhees mask definitely helps. This, I mean, I, I guess it makes the list wide, wide open in a lot of ways. Well, uh, it's the most, uh, one of the most sort of aside on my lists, I would argue, that, that is straight from the genre. And if we were making a straight list of just my favorite movies of the 80s, it would rank much higher than that. But I just wanted to well, throw Well, here's uh, the thing, I mean, I, mean I did not put Blade Runner on this list. No, no. <laughs> Uh, uh, for the and most I, part, I did ignore sci-fi, and this is, but I also it, it sort of speaks to me of a really popular thread in the '80s of post-apocalyptic yeah. movies, yeah. Uh, and and paranoid TV shows like the Day After miniseries and mm -hmm. that Testament movie we were still very much in Cold War. People were scared that the that things like the Road Warrior could happen. So I don't know. Uh, I, I snuck the Road Warrior in. I, I turn my head and I go, hmm. "We're on twenty-four. Please forgive me." Alrighty, fine. All right. You want to, I guess this goes to 23rd, do we not? 23rd position. And you're going to... This is the controversial one, because you're going to be like, what? No. I know that you're not going to like me about this. Okay. But at number 23, I have Day of the Dead. Okay. George A. Romero's Day of the Dead. Um, still a pretty amazing horror movie. My whole problems with it are how essentially the villains are portrayed. I, they're supposed to be PTSD, and by no means am I an expert on PTSD, but they are such cartoons that it brings it down quite a bit on the list. Um, it's still, I mean, when the zombies do attack, that it's glorious. And the ideas are strong, just some of the execution. But it's still great. It's Romero. Okay. Do you yeah. want me to blow your mind? Yeah, sure. Day of the Dead's not on my list. Slap me sideways and call me George. <laughs> really? I was trying to make room to represent some George and some zombies, and there was some good George and some good zombies, but uh, I, was, I had to be brutal. This was a really fucking tough list for me, Lee. <laughs> like, I oh. love Day of the Dead, but uh, I'm talking about the 80s as a whole and 80s genre movies as a whole. And See, this when you say genre, man, this makes me turn my head, because I went horror. I, I, no, I, when I let the list happen, man. I think you'll find at the end this is a list of horror movies. Way more than anything else. All right. Well, at 23, I had Dway of the Dead. I'm... Okay. 23, I have Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer. 
It's a really Terrible. fucking disturbing movie, and it was it's the tail end of the '80s, and it's a progressive horror movie as to the direction. It's a horror movie that I should have given more thought to. I, will, I won't give you that. It's yeah. a terrifying movie, and it's to where the direction of horror was going in a lot of ways. A lot of the '80s movies that I love and that will rank much higher than Henry does on the list, mm-hmm. they're a lot more fun and a lot less thoughtful. Mm-hmm. This is a really creepy, meditative sort of get inside the head of the killer movie. Yeah. It also has sort of uh, a, a, an amazing and disturbing found footage sequence mm-hmm. where two killers are viewing their murder scene on a VHS tape. Mm-hmm. And we don't realize that that's what happens until late in the movie. Yeah. It taps into voyeurism. It sort of introduced the world to Michael Rooker before he was an over-the-top actor. Yeah. He gave a very restrained and spooky performance. Yeah. It's not a movie for anyone, but I thought it was worthy of mentioning. So All right. There's Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. What's your 22nd ranking? Well, see, once again, then, I'm thinking our lists are going to are gonna vary quite differently. I, I thought just to represent, although I, I think a lot of these, I mean, a good portion of these movies of the series are way low pedigree to the other movies on the list, but that's Friday the 13th. Yeah. Uh, I put it there, but like I said, I was going horror movies. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. I mean, it's the introduction of Jason. Yeah. And I'm just very curious about your list right now yeah. because, I mean, I, I missed Henry. I didn't put Henry on there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Friday the 13th. Nice. It's yeah. a fantastic movie that's also Jonas not Kenny on and my Jason, list. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's why I believe it. Now go for it. What's, what's Larry? I'm starting to freak you out here. Hey? I'm peaked. Okay. In 22nd position, that's where we are right now, yes? Yeah. The Vanishing. Thriller, but okay. But yeah. Uh, again, it's at the tail end of the 80s. Um, the director actually ended up remaking this in the 90s very unsuccessfully. Yeah. But it's a story of a man who loses his wife. She is and just he finds out how it the happens. face yeah. of the earth. And he becomes obsessed with finding out what happens to her. And he gets an offer that says you can find out what happened to her by having what happened to her happen to you. Mm-hmm. And that's the premise of this very grim and, uh, I think, memorable I found it to be a horror movie. Uh, maybe you could argue it's more psychological thriller. But See, I think it's at this point, fun. then though, if you're claustrophobic, stay when was far Fatal away. Attraction then? That's in the eighties. See, it's not on my list. Well, no, <laughs> it's not on my list either. Yeah, but yeah, you, I think I think, think it's, it's more into the thriller genre. Well, if you're adding thrillers, okay, 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 <laughs> it's it's a terrifying movie. I'm not I'm not disputing that. In twenty first place for Lee Beckman. Um. Once again, this movie's too strange not to put on this list, and there's some horrifying things. It's a far more interesting movie than terrifying, but at number 21, I have our homegrown talent, David Cronenberg's Videodrome. Nice. Um, this movie is bizarre, and the ideas are strong, and it is disturbing, and it's monstrous, but not terrifying. It's, yeah. it's like Altered States, more interesting than it is, say, scary. Yeah. But... And, uh, yeah, it sort of twisted the genre. It's sci-fi, fantasy, yeah. horror. It's everything at once. Yes. Uh, highly sexual, highly violent. James yeah. Wood, edgy performance. Yeah. It's a good pull. I might... It's not on my list, but it's one of the ones that might... Maybe should be. Cronenberg does get representation here. Yeah. I don't want you to worry about yeah. that. Yeah, okay. All right. In uh, 21st position, I have Pumpkinhead. Oh, yeah, I thought about that. 
Um, it's a good Faustian sort of tale. I wanted to represent sort of an 80s classic form creature feature, and yeah. a lot of the ones that like I could conclude here, but don't, like, you know, the Critters, Ghoulies, Gremlins, Child's Play, though that sort of type of sort of fun 80s yeah. monster movie. Yeah. And my representing for that is Pumpkinhead. Yeah. You don't see a lot of the creature, but the creature is very motivated. It's a vengeance demon. Yes. And the witch that creates the creature is arguably as scary as the yes, creature Yes, yes, and the fact that Lance Henriksen slowly turns into Another. Lance Henriksen gives a real performance in the yep. center of it's the movie. It's good. It's good. I'd so, have to. I'd, I'd have to rewatch it again. So anyway, yeah. I wanted to shout out for Pumpkinhead, and in a way, okay. it's sort of representing the great creature effect movies of the eighties. So, okay. There's Pumpkinhead. Okay. Michael and Sam have just moved to Santa Carla, California. They're about to discover its secret. Notice anything? unusual about Santa Carla yet? No. It's a pretty cool place. If you're a Martian. Or a vampire. So where are you? The flying nun? I'm your brother, Sammy. Help me! Stay back! Stay back! What's happening to me, Star? Get yourself a good, sharp stick. Drive it right through his heart. You're a vampire, Michael. My own brother, a damn blood-sucking vampire. Oh, you wait till Mom finds out, buddy. When a vampire buys it, it's never a pretty sight. Michael, they're coming! Oh, shit! The Lost Boys wasn't a real obvious choice for uh, this discussion of uh, 80s horror movies. We both picked three of the movies that we were going to review, and I picked the first two, The Fly and the Blob, right away I wanted to talk about mm -hmm. those two remakes and how much joy they give me and uh, great prosthetic effects. And it took me forever to humming and hawing, like, what's that third movie going to be? And I chose The Lost Boys, not because I think it's an amazing movie, but when I think 1980s and I think horror, like with those things cross-reference in my brain, mm -hmm. I think the most 80s horror movie has to be The Lost Boys. <laughs> well, I will say this about The Lost Boys. If, you, if there's one scene that sort of just kind of clearly defines what the 80s were in all its glory, one has to look at that glorious, glorious scene with the steroid-taking, <laughs> completely oiled-down saxophone sort of punk rock musician who just fucking rocks that saxophone. I guess at some point the fact that he's all greased and has like the long sweaty ponytail hair and was yeah. muscularly and a totally 80s song. Playing the I saxophone. still believe! Yeah I, yeah, I mean maybe at one point that was considered sexy but at this point like I, I don't want to be near that person. I certainly yeah. wouldn't want to touch that person. Like yeah. if I had to brush up against that person in a lineup or something I would feel like really... <laughs> <laughs> just icky but like icky. yeah there is the funny 80s it's funny everybody mentions that guy he's in the movie seriously for three seconds but it's everyone's just like, such an holy 80s shit. moment but there's I'll show this all through the movie basically every, everything that Corey Haim wears he's like this total oh mall fashion victim that outfit he wears the second time to visit the Frog Brothers yeah what he's but it's the style uh, extends into the Lost Boys themselves. This yeah. group of uh, 
young vampires. Yeah. Young in that they, you know, they're eternally young, but young in that they're relatively nearly changed. Yeah. And I think that they're still enjoying the fact that they're the powerful immortal creatures because yeah. the idea of what immortality means hasn't had time to sink in. Yeah. They really are the Lost Boys. I think that's a great title as far as, you know, well, referencing Peter of, Pan. Yeah. And the, the, this island where children don't grow up. The original, that's what these vampires are. The original conception for the script, um, and when Schumacher came on, he changed the ages of a lot of the characters yeah. because originally the script had a lot of these were kids. It was Goonies go uh, Goonies versus Dracula, basically. Yeah. Which I think would have been a far more terrifying concept, to be perfectly well, honest. But Monster Squad probably was beaten to the punch on that, all right? It would be basically another Monster Squad, which didn't do particularly well financially. And B, uh, I think that Schumacher was right to hone in on the sort of sexy angle. Vampires are a sexy monster, you know? If you wanted to go Goonies meets the Mummy, for sure. You want to go Goonies meets the Wolfman, for sure. Goonies meets Dracula, there's a weird missing sexual component there, because... Dracula is not a seductive figure to them, or I hope he's not. He's an adult figure, damn it. Yeah. Uh, anyway, you're right. Originally, it was going to be these kids, and he updated the roles for you know an 18 year old Kiefer Sutherland and an 18 year old Jason Patrick. Yeah. Interestingly, the Frog Brothers, uh, the characters played by Corey Feldman and uh, Jason Newlander. Yeah. Their dialogue didn't get updated almost at all yeah. so the reason that they talk like they're 10 or 12 years old is because that's how the parts were written yeah. and I think that's just such a piece of quiet genius in the movie <laughs> it's like this accidentally perfect thing that these stunted guys that are stuck in their childhood uh, who would never have the guts to look at let alone you know kiss a girl <laughs> will boldly crawl into the lair of a vampire and stake the motherfucker <laughs> I love the fact they're total nerds in denial. <laughs> yeah. But they don't play it like nerds. Yeah. The Frog Brothers don't know that they're, they're nerds. very committed. The Frog Brothers take their shit very seriously. They, <laughs> they think that the Frog Brothers is this awesome institution. Uh, and yeah, it's weird. In the same way we sort of look at how ridiculous everyone else is acting and, and behaving within this 80s aesthetic, yeah. uh, from a detached way, that's how the people within that movie look at the Frog Brothers. Yeah, <laughs> so, I know, I know. Uh, these two brothers... Uh, you should really tell the plot. I yeah, know you that's sort what I'm of... saying. Jason Patrick and Corey Haim play Michael and Sam, two brothers of... Uh, Who are moved by their mother, Diane yeah. Weist, God love her. Clearly, they've, the, it's a broken family. Uh, Jason Patrick is old enough that he's almost out the door, but uh, he's helping his younger brother adjust to this new life. Uh, moved to they, Santa Carla. They moved to Santa Carla to live with their grandfather, played by memorably by Barnard Hughes, and their mom, played by one of my favorites, Diane Weist. Yep. I love Diane Weist in this movie. She's yeah. like the ultimate like loving, caring mother who is like generous almost to a fault, mm-hmm. loves her boys to a fault. But there's a few points in the movie where she puts her foot down as mom, yeah. and you fucking believe it. Yeah. And there's a few points where she gets her back up and is defending her family where you believe it. Like, yeah. I love Diane Weist. I'll always love yeah. Diane Weist. And this movie is, I, mean, I think, a big part of why. It made an impression on me when I was a kid. Edward Hurryman, I think, I hope I'm saying that also correctly, is also very, the late, very great. Great. He passed away recently. Yeah, yes, he did. Yep. He plays Max, who the Frog Brothers suspect uh, is the head vampire. <laughs> and have this wonderfully comedic scene where they try and, well, 
essentially poison him. Yeah, they uh, they spike his dinner with the raw garlic to see how he reacts and yeah. kill the lights and turn on the lights with a mirror in front of his face. Mm-hmm. But they forgot an important rule. Yeah, you never invite a vampire. You can't in. invite a vampire into your house. It renders you powerless. Um, it's, he seems pretty powerful by the end of the movie. The third will deal with him too. But uh, it's a great little twist there because it does seem to make sense that Max is the head vampire. Like, As a kid, I completely missed it, though. That's the thing. I was sort of taken aback that Max... And this is... I think I was 12 when I am, I think. But the twist works because... So we, oh, no, it totally works. We like like that they suspect him. We kind of almost believe them and want him to be right. Mm-hmm. But then it's definitively shown, no, it's not him. Mm-hmm. So when the reveal happens, no, you guys were actually had it actually dead on first try. Yeah. Uh, it's a great reveal. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he seems to really enjoy, you know, yeah. playing the, you know, a, a little bit a different character. He's used to playing more stuffy rich guy roles, you know. Yeah. In this movie, he's kind of cool and romantic. He's a seductive vampire who happens to look like like a nerdy middle-aged guy, right? I think I will say this about The Lost Boys. Nothing will clearly age and define your movie <laughs> if you use well at the time pretty modern pop, you know, popular music that you know is playing on the airwaves a whole bit. Yeah, all of it just screams '80s. I think yeah. the Cry Little Sister, the main anthem. I was gonna maybe actually make a Cry Little Sister joke for you, Larry, but the time has passed. But <laughs> well, uh, I think that that is aged. As far as the soundtrack goes, it's yeah. aged well, but it's something that you know anybody of that time will instantly think. Yeah. Lost Boys. It's yeah. like to the this song to the Lost Boys is "Don't You Forget About Me" yeah. to the Breakfast Club, right? It's yeah. just it's just tied to that to that movie in that time yeah did you ever see the sequel to this I've seen both of the sequels to the last I, I, I haven't seen the third one I've seen the second one that there's, there's basically a quick shot of they have this really out of sh- out of shape saxophone player that yeah. is a tribute to that just made me kind of giggle you really love that saxophone I do I do he's in the movie for four seconds and everybody that, that whole scene just sort of kind of completely clearly sums up the 80s That's for me the because whole movie to people. it was the 80s were a time where we as a fashion we went completely mad yeah. we really did I mean the fashion were like bright neon colors with a thing big almost bell-bottom type pants that were wild you know, colors this is the decade where cocaine was the most favorite kind of drug excess was not only celebrated it's very gaudy it, it was just it was celebrated. It was beyond celebrated. Yeah, it was. Know? Yeah, and even by the standards of today, which yeah. is you know often considered a shallow, greedy culture. Yeah, the eighties sort of you know that Wall Street quote era. Yeah, yeah. The scene is just so over the top that you just you wonderfully giggle and embrace it. It is just yeah. Anyways. The stylization, even of the vampires, these eternal yeah. age people, as I was saying, and, I, and like I said, I like the Peter Pan reference there. Yeah. Uh, they look super cool within the standards of the 80s. Yeah. Presumably their look would change depending on the day, but they yeah. would stay these immortal young people. Yeah. You look at the movie now and you see Jason Patrick and the Corys and Jamie Gertz mm-hmm. and, you know... Uh, Kiefer uh, Sutherland and nice to see Alex it's Winter. It's star-studded, right? At the time this movie made out, like these guys are like 18 years old. The only other credit that uh, Kiefer Sutherland had, had stateside at that point it was Stand, Stand By, by me. me. Yeah, like he's not a lock. He's not guaranteed work, but uh, everybody is awesome in the movie. And uh, it may look silly to us now a little bit, but mm-hmm. for the style and time of the 80s, yeah, the Lost Boys really you know hit it out of the park. 
it did well theatrically, but on home video, it wasn't they, a huge. Oh yeah, it wasn't a huge, huge hit. On, but on home video, they just couldn't off. print enough copies yeah. of it. They yeah. just couldn't print enough copies of it. So, yeah. uh, my first memory of Lost Boys actually is this is the time when my sister really started reading those, you know, teeny magazines where all the cute boys were in the cover. Basically, you know, like teen porn or porn yeah. for preteens. And The Lost Boys was all over the magazine, and my sister was completely obsessed with this movie, and I was intrigued because it was, you know, well, vampires. Yeah. But she wanted to see it because she had a huge crush on Jason Patrick and Corey Haim, and... I like how not PG it is. It turns a little dark towards the end, yeah. It feels, again, much like The Blob. It sort of sucker punches you. It sort of starts you with this nice, warm, family-friendly vibe. And that scene where Michael, you know is being tested by the these new band of vampires mm-hmm. and they come clean to him that no we tricked you into drinking vampire blood and we're about to go feed on this group of campers mm-hmm. and you have to learn to feed yeah or you know you're not just out the group you're you're, you're dead we yeah. find out later they've been tasked to convert diane weist's children but yeah. we don't know this at diane weist was the end game yeah that's who he wanted the whole time but the that whole murder sequence and feeding sequence they yeah. don't dwell on the violence but it's, but it's quick, very red <laughs> like quick it's quick and brutal yeah it's hardcore mm-hmm. and uh Jason Patrick's character is watching it from the tree on one hand horrified and stunned like the human part of mm-hmm. him wants to run but the vampire inside of him is drooling and yeah. excited at yeah. the same time and that so to me is what vampire lore is about that forbidden sex violence connection mm-hmm. uh, it works really well Jason Patrick is a weird fellow to me like he always strikes me whenever you see him interviewed or whenever he talks about a film like he takes himself like almost too seriously mm-hmm. and uh, you know he'd been in like Solar Babies before this which is ridiculous Yeah, and he had to be talked into doing this movie because he kind of felt like it felt kind of silly and they wouldn't take him seriously after as an actor you know blah yeah. blah blah and, but he'll also turn around and do, like, utterly ridiculous roles as well. <laughs> what was that? Loser? No, the Losers, The yeah. Losers? Yeah. See the bad guy in that? He yeah. was a great bad guy in that. And, and I mean, like, silly. And over-the-top silly and goofy. Yeah. Uh, but, like, he always presents himself as the super serious guy who can't take a joke. He actually did, I think, made fun of it uh, on Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. I remember him being this party guest at the party who's the super intense guy. Yeah. Even when he's being friendly, he just kills the atmosphere in the room. I really like this part. <laughs> right? Anyway, he's a, got an interesting energy, but in yeah. the 80s, you're right, he flooded the basement of every female that <laughs> saw him. It was just yeah, it was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, no, he was McHardy. Uh, and people always go on about like the Corys. The Corys was really like... 1987 to 1990 and this was sort of what started the the Corys as yeah. you know not two separate teeny bopper entities about that now they're gonna team up and do a bunch of movies together that are way fucking worse than the lost movies yeah <laughs> I love the fact that they, this is also kind of a biker movie in a lot of ways there is lots of riding to the bikes that's sort of a tip of the hand to the old rebel movies of the 60s which of course in this modern day would be what somewhat of the Fast and the Furious franchise mm-hmm. But anyways, yeah, Lost Boys, Lost Boys kind of strikes me. I remember when you, talk, you first talked about, you know, making this one of your movies that you were going to talk about. 
is one of those movies that plays a lot like a 90 minute music video. <laughs> yeah, it is one of the first style as substance movies yeah. that I kind of embrace. And that's one of the things that I think overall hurts this movie. The movie's a lot of fun, but never really all that scary. I mean, like I said, it, is, it has a couple of nasty little turns, but um, it's the actors really sell this movie and make this movie a lot of fun to watch. Well, can I say something possibly controversial? Sure. Best ending F. <laughs> That's a bold statement. I like the ending a lot. Barnard Hughes, who's sort of been our comic relief to this whole movie, but a yeah. peripheral character. Yeah. Who's supposedly out on a date with some widow trying to yeah. get laid. Yeah. Shows up by backing his truck in through the sidewall of his house yeah. which is backloaded with all these fence posts yeah. which fly in and utterly annihilate the head vampire at the end yeah. the houses exploded people are covered in, in dust and in blood guts and, and gore yeah. he walks past everyone opens a refrigerator pops a root beer yeah. takes a sip looks at the camera and says the one thing I could never stand about living in Santa Carla all, All the, the damn vampires. vampires. Yeah. Credits. <laughs> People are strange when you're a stranger. Yeah. The movie is really stupid, but it's also yeah. smart enough to and know it's silly, that though. it's really stupid. Yeah. And that we don't need the denouement scene. We don't need the I love you scene. We don't need to see Jason Patrick kiss the girl. We don't need to see Diane Weiss hug and, and, and tell her kids that she loves them. We don't need any of that. In fact, the more we think about this movie, the more it's going to fall apart in our hands. Yeah. So leave them fucking laughing. <laughs> All damn vampires. <laughs> I fucking loved it when I was 13 years old. Yeah. And I love it to this day. And as far as final shots in a movie, and again, I don't think Lost Boys is amazing. That sounds like I'm overpraising it. Yeah. But it's like final, <laughs> as a way to like, you know smash slam into credits it's one of the best ever moments I think I just I don't know what to compare it to it's fun yeah. it's fun um, I was kind of trying to think of you know what would be a really good Joel Schumacher movie I don't think Lost Boys is his crowning achievement I think Falling Down is way stronger Falling Down is a strong movie for sure I'm a big Millimet Flatliners fan yeah 8mm has its it's a disturbing thriller Mm -hmm. I don't know. If it's, it's I think good. he's an underrated filmmaker. Yeah, his Batman movies are terrible. Well, yeah. but then so, you, you, the, but once you get past the Batman movies, what else have you got? Dying Young, DC Cab. I don't know. I never did see that. The phone booth movies. He's also really prolific. He's yeah. a working a, a director. You know, yeah. there's always the next project, and he tries to put his sort of spin on it. I don't hate Schumacher. I yeah. understand why people do, and he's made really forgettable movies. Anybody remember Bad Company? Chris Rock and Anthony Hopkins. Right. Yeah. Nobody remembers that movie, and they shouldn't, right? right? It's just that, like, uh, yeah, he's had a bunch of statements. I never saw that Nazi zombie horror movie he did with... Um, it's got surprising teeth. Like, again, you wouldn't necessarily see that movie coming from Joel what's Schumacher. What's his name? What's his name? Um, Fassbender. Yeah, Michael Fassbender. Yeah. I never did see Tigerland. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I do remember. I, like... Schumacher's an underrated talent. This time, this was his third movie. He was still a young director, hungry and trying to prove himself. He didn't know that there'd be another gig. This movie was monster huge. Originally, like I said, it's going to be a kids' movie directed by Richard Donner, and he turned it into something else. And it was one of those slow burns, like you said. It made its money back in the theaters, mm -hmm. but people loved that movie. They realized fairly quickly that they'd made something with cultural impact. 
Mm. And like I said, in a discussion of 80s horror movies, what's a more 80s horror movie than this, like, maybe Vamp with Grace Jones? Or, like, Night of the Comet? Or something like that? Like, it's so 80s that it's fucking awesome. <laughs> you know? Uh, I also like that the, some of the things... They use vampire lore, but there's some mm. good twists to it. I like that uh, all of the gangs sort of hang beneath the train bridge yeah. as the train's crossing, and Michael sees it as some sort of rite of passage or guts thing, that yeah. this is something that they've all done that you can hang on, yeah. and as they drop off, because the vampires can fly should they choose, he believes momentarily that these people are dropping to his death, yeah. to their death, and then he realizes that he's not going to be able to hang on, and yeah. that he may drop to his death. Like, uh, that was a really cool sequence, you know? Mm. When he wakes up, the very following sequence, he wakes up with his face pressing against the ceiling of his room. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that would be hard to adjust to. Yep. Yeah, it wouldn't be a lot of fun. It's not fun to be a vampire, even though the poster lies to you and says it would be. I love the scene where Diane Weist stops by to visit her new boyfriend during the afternoon, and the usually friendly Thor the dog that, that is actually is a hound of hell suddenly fucking charges at her and is super terrifying uh you know there's there's good stuff in this movie it's not deep no but it's fun uh, the fact that the vampires sleep hanging upside down in that sort of underground cave yeah one another really memorable sequence like with like say with the frog brothers these two guys who work at a comic book shop who know all about these vampires and fucking are super serious and we soon find out are completely overwhelmed with the task they well they have a great line like they 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 brave and bold and on task and armed and good to go and really more on task than anyone else in that initial you know attack and they uh find it turns out uh what's his face Bill from Bill, uh, Alex Winter. Alex Winter hanging upside down. Yeah, they uh, stake him, and I guess they imagined that that would be that they would stake him and he would be dead. Instead, his eyes pop open. He fountain shoots a fountain of blood and he starts screaming and uh, wakes up the other vampires, alerts them to the situation, yeah. and before expiring themselves, very nearly costs the Frog Brothers their lives. You. And at that point, they finally lose their composure and run away, yeah. which is the right thing to, to do. do. Yeah. But they have this great exchange, like, uh, oh no, we, we failed in the face of our adversary. Yeah. And he says, it's not our fault. They pulled a mind warp on us. <laughs> they opened their eyes and talked. <laughs> oh. like, it was all the panels of a comic book until all of a sudden it really seriously fucking wasn't. <laughs> Them interrupting a bris to fill their water pistols with holy water, yeah. you know, and just give it a little nod to the families. Yeah. Again, if it was a bunch of kids, that's sort of a charming scene. But because they're a bunch of teenagers, it's really weird. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, that's all it makes me laugh, though. Yeah. Uh, and that's what it's designed to do. It's a piece of entertainment. Yeah. Uh, I, I feel like I'm overpraising it. A lot of times, I'm reviewing a movie that's amazing, and I'm always talking about the nitpicky things that bother me. I will see In this. In this case, I'm reviewing a movie that's okay, and I'm just going on about all the stuff that I really like. I will see this. There were a lot of girls that really loved this movie. For yeah. one, for one thing, it was sort of a generation's last of the great movie. date movie. Oh yeah, great date movie. Yeah.
At number 20, I had the more funny than scary. It's definitely icky. And it has one of the best catchy lines ever in the genre. Thrill me. Oh, no. <laughs> Night of the Creeps, baby. <laughs> nice. Night of the Creeps. This, like I said, it's more funny than yeah. it is scary. It's, it's a fun ride. Uh, I'm glad Fred Decker and Shane Black are talking again. <laughs> um, it's a lot of fun, and it has one of the best characters of the entire genre. Get excited, people. This is the creative team that's going to bring us the new Predator movie. Yo. Uh, it probably won't be as funny as Night of the Creeps, which is no. on my list, but higher than you've ranked it here. Uh, but, already. Uh, we're starting to be on more of the same page. Yeah. Yep. In 20th position for me, and this might be shockingly low for you, so I apologize. John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. No, it's not that far off. Um, I do love me some Prince of Darkness. and yeah. uh, There's a lot of Carpenter movies that I would like to include, but don't. Like Big yeah. Trouble in Little China, or They Live. See, once again, we're, like, we're talking action comedies. Yeah, but yeah. like I love them so much. Yeah. I associate them with the 80s so much, yeah. I almost want them to be here. Yeah. But I'm not including them. Well, but once I am again, going there's, to there's yeah, there, but there's monsters and there's ghosts in it. But yeah, and okay, it, it's a, a Carpenter movie that takes itself seriously. I've talked about it before in the podcast. Yeah, and it sort of echoes that sort of paranoid uh, faith-based uh, horror movies in the '80s, like Angel Heart, The Believers, yeah. Witchboard, shit like that. Mm-hmm. All of those. I think this is kind of the best of that bunch. So uh, representing, and we'll hear more from Carpenter as well, but yeah. I love Prince of Darkness. It kind of hurt to rank it that low. Well, the, the thing is, like, Prince of Darkness has some really good ideas, but they just don't flesh them out. The whole idea with the book, even, um, and they could have done so much stuff, the fact that, is it, is it Satan, or what is it that's being the, dragged, uh, dragged through? The son of Satan yeah. manifests and possesses this pregnant woman yeah. in order to pull his father out from the netherworld, from yeah. hell or whatever. Yeah. Uh, it turns into a zombie slasher film, which had been done numerous times before. It's, it is terrifying, but I agree. It, it, everything ages well except for the humor in the movie, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Whenever they're trying to be funny or making zingers, uh, it kind of kills the stakes. But yeah. I love the movie. I'm a big fan of Prince of Darkness. Okay. I wish it was higher on the list. But I understand. There it is. Okay. 19? Uh, 19. I have the sort of pseudo-remake of Rear Window, but only with vampires. I have Fright Night. Lots of fun. A little bit scary. Um... And it's the it's once again those sort of plastic effects. I can't remember. I don't think Boutine did it, but uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, and that's uh, Fright Night by Tom Holland, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it's the second right Tom Holland movie. Yeah, that's a very '80s movie. Yeah. Chris Sarandon and what's her face, who was the neighbor on Married with Children. Yes, in it. I know who you speak of. There's like yeah, it sort of operates in the same area as the Lost Boys does for me, but I have a little bit more fondness personally for Lost Boys myself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I get why it's there, but it's also not on my list. I love how different our lists are okay. to be. All right, here's my second controversial pick that you may wag your finger at. And it's another personal one, but yeah. it fucking terrified me. At 19th, I have Christopher Walken starring in Communion. It's the story of Whitley Stryber, an author who uh, claims to have had repeated visitation from aliens. And although that is a sci-fi construct, the movie itself I find quite frightening. It is terrifying. I still find it quite frightening. It's, it's got a lot of ticks and hums. It's very 80s, mm-hmm. and it was sort of made outside of Hollywood and distributed mm-hmm. by Hollywood, so it's sort mm-hmm. of a weirdly, truly independent movie that mm-hmm. made a lot of ripples. But uh, for all of its awkwardness and for all of its cheapness and the weird way it's handled, mm-hmm. I find the paranoia that the movie induces mm-hmm. and those visitations that he encounters... Mm-hmm 
frightening enough. Yeah, that it, I it didn't make it didn't make my list. I, I'm only, I, I'm nodding my head at approval though. You're okay, more more so with that one yes. than you are with oh, yeah. Worry, yeah, no, it's a, it's a scary movie. Okay. Um, so yeah, I guess number eighteen. Yep. Number eighteen, I think I and this is the only anthology movie I have on here, and that's Creep Show. Nice. Uh, with George A. Romero's and who else? George A. Romero directed it. Stephen King wrote, wrote it. it. Okay, yeah, no, Creep Show. Um, we'll be talking about that one again. Yes. Yep, yep. It's it's awesome. Yeah. Even even '80s Ed Harris dancing quite badly. <laughs> so, it, that disco dance makes Ooh. me laugh out loud every Woof. time. Every time. Woof. Okay, so there you go, Creep Show. All right, and that's your sorry, 18th. Yep. My 18th, a surprise pick for me because it actually has aged better than I remember. Clive Barker's Hellraiser. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was a kid, I didn't like that one as much. It didn't really speak to me that mm-hmm. much. But upon revisiting it relatively recently, um, considering that Clive Barker was not a filmmaker <laughs> and the, that he was telling a very sort of modern Lovecraftian tale mm-hmm. on a very, very little budget mm-hmm. with, uh, you know, a, basically his first whack at making a, a feature mm-hmm. horror film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that it's fairly impressive and that uh, the fact that there's 10 sequels and that Pinhead has become something of a cultural boogeyman was worthy of mention. So Hellraiser. It's not on my list. I won't, no Hellraiser. No Hellraiser. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, good, good selection. Okay. Uh, number 17. I do have actually Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. I agree with you. There's some problems, but it's, there's, there's so much good stuff there. I just couldn't leave it off, off the list. The list yeah. um, I know... That one that's not here, that is the fog. I don't think it's worthy of the top twenty-five. It's not on my list. Yeah. No. So I think, although we will be talking about Carpenter again. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna put uh, Prince of Darkness. I love the first forty-five minutes of that movie, from the mood to the setup to everything. Yeah. Um, it it is a truly scary movie, and there's some really good ideas you know put in there. He he just needed to follow through more on that. But hey, that's just me. Fair enough. Mm. Uh, my number 17, that's where we are, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, introduced the world to Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell. It is the original Evil Dead. Mm. It is very rough-hewn movie. It is very amateurishly made, but the amount of energy and love put into it and the, the time when it came out, when the, the age of the video nasties, it made a big impression. Mm. And uh, it's a very culturally significant horror movie mm-hmm. and for all its you know flaws I keep going back to it I do enjoy me some Evil Dead well I have Sam Raimi on the list but not that one yeah. I would put it way way lower but I mean it is what it is there it is alright uh, we're at 16 are we that's not that's correct I don't want to be buried in a pet cemetery na 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 I don't know the words yeah I don't want to live my life again. Yeah, there you go. Ah, uh, Joey Ramone. Anyways, yeah, I have Mary Lambert's only really good movie. <laughs> that hurts to say, but it's probably kind of true, isn't it? Which is Pet Cemetery. It's got some creaks and moans and some very 80s things, some little hammy acting, hammy acting at points. But uh, overall, such a solid story. Such terrifying An ugly, things. mean-spirited movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, no fair. 
I find it uh, like it's a terrifying movie. I agree. I find it to the point that it's unpleasant. Uh, to the point that like, I, I have a hard time revisiting it. I just find it icky. Yeah. Uh, I Stephen King is represented on my list, and yeah. it, ha- it was on my list at one time. But to make room for other things, I, I pushed it off. I do like Pet Cemetery, but I yeah. don't enjoy Pet Cemetery. If that makes sense. Well, it's a horrifying movie. Yeah. It's it's an ugly movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, in my sixteenth place, uh, banking off of Evil Dead, the much more successful Evil Dead 2. Really? Dead it's that low? <laughs> oh. Because uh, the level of comedy included. We're having the, words, son. <laughs> that shit ain't right. <laughs> oh. Oh. No, no, no. Your list has been interesting, but you're putting that as low as it is? It's not a photocopy of Evil Dead. It's not the same movie at all. It's the same setting and the same character, but played for lunacy and laughter and abstract horror. And I love it. I love it. It's one of the best sequels ever. I was tempted to say the best sequel ever, but there's another sequel that ranks higher on this list. Yeah. Um, The movie's visually insane. Yeah. Um, The fact that this is before CGI, so the stuff they get away with in this movie is a technical marvel. Um, Bruce Campbell's so good. The fact that you've ranked him this low makes me go... Never. Yeah, there's a weird one that it was it, the movie is bug fucking insane. But okay, all right. Since we're talking like that, mm-hmm. okay, okay. Keep that coat I got signals. I got readings in front and behind. There's nothing back here. Look, I'm telling you, there's something moving in. It ain't us. Get me out of there. One of the many amazing things about Aliens from James Cameron Mm. is how much this movie had to live up to. Mm. Even though Ridley Scott's movie wasn't that old at the time, Alien was, it it sort of arrived to the world a full-fledged classic. It's a seminal movie, yeah. yeah. It married science fiction and a horror so perfectly that it's like... arguably almost impossible peak to try and meet and mm-hmm. the smart thing I think that one of the many smart things that, that Cameron did when approaching the sequel was not try to outdo Alien particularly mm-hmm. Alien was a really good really scary creature feature in space mm-hmm. Aliens is a really scary really intense sci-fi action thriller mm-hmm. and uh, it's different enough from the original to be distinct but enough of the same world to definitely, you know, establish itself as part of the canon. And I have the unpopular opinion that I think it's a better film overall than Ridley Scott's Alien. And Although a lot of people, you, yes. a lot of people will disagree with us there. Yeah. But I will make that case. And uh, I think you're right as far as as far as overall script and execution. This is the least problematic James Cameron film. 
Mm-hmm. The only thing that comes close to it is maybe Terminator 2. Mm-hmm. But it's an amazing science fiction action thriller. Are we justified in including the sci-fi action thriller as one of the greatest horror movies of the oh, decade? Oh, this movie is terrifying from the opening credits right away to the ending credits. Do you remember when James Cameron was a, an amazing filmmaker? You yeah, know, there was excited. a whole era where any you were excited, was... like really, really excited to see the next James Cameron movies. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that time? I mean, in a span of I think what fifteen years, we had Terminator, we had Aliens, we had Terminator Two. We had the, the abyss. The I think abyss. the abyss was before Terminator Two, was it? Yeah. Not? Yeah. So like, there are four unbelievably good, at least sci-fi action. You don't have Piranha Two in that list, no? As much as I love the Piranha films, the <laughs> <laughs> Piranha Two doesn't doesn't quite make that list either. Yeah. Essentially, what happened? It just the fact that he pulled this off in a span of two years. On the same day that he got the Aliens gig, he also got the uh, Rambo First Blood Part 2 writing gig and went to the producers, uh, Walter Hill and David Geidler, I think his name is. He he phoned him and said, look, I got got this problem. Um, I got your gig, but I also got Rambo First Blood Part 2. What am I supposed to do? And Hill said, you don't don't do both. You finish your post-production on Terminator, on the Terminator, uh, and then span it out. You've got six months to deliver two scripts. Now he completely started from scratch with Rambo: First Blood Part Two. What he did though is he had an earlier script called Mother, believe it or not, incorporated Ripley into it, and you know changed the aliens to obviously the xenomorphs that we saw in the first one, or xenomorph I should say. And off he went. And the production of the film was met with a lot of well hiccups, if you will, from different sort of culture of work ethic to you know things not working on screen and it was all it's all practical effects as well puppetry and practical effects you put in this movie and it is a thrill ride from the second the marines realize they are in over their heads right to the very very end he had so much to live up to yeah. fighting against the the classic that is Ridley Scott. And yeah. like I said, most people seem to disagree with me that mm-hmm. Aliens is the better of the two movies. But even the people that do disagree with me won't argue that Aliens is fucking amazing. Yeah, um, it's one of these direct sort of sort of sequels. Uh, it doesn't happen immediately following the events of Alien, but as yeah. far as Ripley is concerned, it yeah. does. Yeah, she wakes up having been lost in cryos for something like six decades yep and uh the paul riser corrupt you know corporate man tells her it was just luck that she happened to be found in the yep. outer reaches yep. otherwise she could have just drifted into internet infinite space yeah and my question to you is would that have been a more merciful fate than the one that she actually is delivered by the alien franchise uh. um, she gets wrapped up with this uh company man played by Paul Reiser as I said mm-hmm. and told that the planet that her original crew had investigated yeah. has now been populated it's been colonialized colonized, yeah, colonized by a sorry. bunch of families and yeah. scientists and they have uh, not so unsurprisingly lost contact with said yeah. settlement yeah. and uh, they go to investigate and bring Ripley along mm-hmm. since she at this point is the only living human being who's ever seen an alien yeah yeah and much horror may- mayhem and action ensues. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
it's the least problematic script in that it, even though it takes arguably about 40 minutes to really start to cook, the movie's never not interesting. It's mm-hmm. always compelling. We're always sort of moving forward with uh, Ripley's journey. Mm-hmm. And the side characters are not just made up of one-liners. They have real characters. Yeah. The often mocked sort of game over, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, Bill Paxton characterization yeah. is something I've always really liked because he starts out being this huge badass. Yeah. And for the first time in his life, he is confronted with a situation which he cannot handle. Yeah. And not only does he fall apart, he falls apart the way you'd expect a fucking toddler to yeah. fall apart. Yeah. I find that really interesting. Yeah. I like that Vasquez, the small female woman, is arguably the most badass member of their entire group. Yeah. I like that Gorman who gets put in charge before he's ready to uh, fucks it up and knows it and kind of owns it yeah I love Lance he's a good Henriksen human being as, and he does sort of redeem himself right before his death absolutely mm-hmm. I love Lance Henriksen as a android who seems to be living with some silent regret with the fact that he's an android yeah <laughs> he wants to fit in with the people but he knows that he is different and Lance Henriksen is so good in this movie I mean a lot of people are very good in this movie but he's definitely one of the the 80s were a great time for Lance Henriksen if you yeah. ask me yeah I like this and it was followed up very immediately by Near Dark which was followed yeah. up fairly immediately by Pumpkinhead yeah those are three very fine Lance Henriksen movie, performances yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so basically what I'm saying is there's no weak characters and it could have been easy. It could have just been a bunch of these military types that we didn't yeah. need to know because a lot of them die fairly quickly and in glorious deaths once the yeah. shit hits the fan. Yeah. But we take the time to get to know and like these people. Yeah. And then we put them in a situation of ever escalating terrible yeah. stakes. It's not just that they find that all these people have been killed and, you know, impregnated with aliens. And yeah. it's not just one alien, it's a whole colony of them yep. but they also find that their rescue ship having been destroyed they cannot get off of this, this planet quick enough before the entire installation is exploded is destroyed yeah. so they have a ticking clock that they need to get off of this place they're technically stranded mm-hmm. and this problem of these aliens constantly showing up to carry them off to be impregnated to make more aliens yep. which is a really awful fate let's it's, be real it's, it's a terrifying fate <laughs> no there's so many things um, that James Cameron does so well and the fact that this is a sequel he took ideas questions that some people had about aliens like you know, obviously an alien you saw you know the, the plethora of eggs you know essentially hatched and laid out a row upon row well who laid those bunch of eggs that was one question that some people had you know, once the first alien came out we get that answer in this gloriously rendered puppet called obviously the queen and it's an t- awesome amazing yeah. sequence um, so she, he, you know, he answered. He took that idea and answered that question. But also, I mean, why, you know, be satisfied with one? With you know, you have a whole colony of creatures that move very quickly and, and know the environment quite well and can get in where most people, you know, first don't think about. We spent an entire movie establishing how just one of these acid bleeding, vicious, yeah, you know, tentacle monster thingies can uh, wipe out a can crew. Can kill an entire crew basically under forty eight hours, if I'm not mistaken. Now, granted, they weren't military folks yeah. and they weren't properly armed to yeah. fight this. They weren't prepared. Yeah, but still, the one alien is a potentially unbeatable lethal enemy yeah a whole bunch of them yeah the stakes get ratcheted up real quickly yeah yeah no and they soon find out that they are in way over their head so the fact that Cameron came up with this idea you know let's make this very much an action horror film which 
a lot of ways there are very few I mean there are very fast-paced violent horror films but this is very as much as a horror film as it is it is also an action film mm-hmm. um, another thing that works so well is the evolution of the Ripley character I mean she was pretty tough in the first one but she was also had a lot of vulnerability which obviously we gravitated to her it's gra- gravitated towards her you know yeah. we, we get suckered in by her journey the fact that Cameron totally hit on this whole, and I mean, it's based off his script Mother. There's a, a huge mother-daughter feminine theme vibe to this movie that's both horrific and totally relatable at the same time. Cameron is all about female sci-fi girl power energy. Yeah. He and Yoss Whedon seem to have cornered the market. Yeah. <clears throat> it's interesting. It seems to me like there should be some, like, high-profile female fantasy author that, that, that is doing this. But mm-hmm. typically it seems to be men that are fixated with powerful yet sexy women for some mm-hmm. reason. Maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. Cause it seems yeah, the strange. thing is that Ripley, I don't find all that sexy, but she's you know, definitely motherly. I mean, there's a, like I said, there's a huge mother-daughter thing. Um, I mean, even Linda Hamilton, who you know he makes into literally this iron-cast warrior. She's full warrior. But I find her much more attractive when she's someone who, you know, can take can, can take on the fight than the person that's just sort of needing to be rescued. And that's just very true. much the reversal that happens here. In the first movie, she is forced into a position of being yeah. badass and fighting off this alien. In the second movie, she pretty much invites the confrontation. This time she goes in knowing what she's dealing with and mm-hmm. in some level trying to fight it because these aliens have already destroyed her life. Yeah. So, yeah. It's rich. The characterizations are rich. And mm-hmm. Sigourney Weaver is so fucking badass. In this oh, movie. my God. I love her taping all the guns together. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, yeah. uh, uh, learning how to use the weapons from Michael Bean, who we yeah. haven't mentioned yet, who this may be his wall, you know, high watermark. I can't believe Michael Bean doesn't have a bigger career than he actually ever had. I think that he might have had personal issues. I think that he may be a difficult personality to deal with, and that might have cost him some roles. All right, well, quite possible. Like I said, this movie had a pretty interesting, I wouldn't say horrendous production, but uh, I, the character of Hicks, uh, when they first started production, was actually cast as James Ramar. Oh, yeah? Uh, James Ramar had the role, but uh, he had his own issues and problems. Which, Whoops. Which, uh, that would let, suck to get fired him, off of that movie. Led him to him getting fired. He even admitted in, in in a different interview and commentary that his love affair with cocaine cost him the job of aliens. Oh, brutal. Yeah. Anyways, but yeah, I, I, who knows? I don't know. It was just strange because Michael Bean had both the you know the Terminator and Aliens and well, because he's in tight with James Cameron. And yeah. A lot of people who have worked with James Cameron tell me you know he's also very difficult. Mm-hmm. So maybe they're just of an interesting similar temperament. Who knows? Um, who knows? But he's really good on screen, and yeah. in the end, like that's what you want. Yeah. Uh, it sucks if he's a handful in between takes, but if you're getting the gold when the camera's rolling, yeah. which you are with Michael Bean, I really think this is the the role that I most identify him with, even more so than the Terminator movie, I think. That yeah, he's well, he's just so very cool and collected. And it's very much a supporting role. I think yeah. it's one of those things where if we had a lot more of him, yeah. we, we might lose some of the mystique in yeah. a way the fact that we only get little bits and pieces of him, but he just yeah. consistently makes the right call yeah. and is consistently awesome and badass. Yeah, you know? he's so good in this movie that, that one of the greatest tragedy, tragedies of the next film you know what, let's get rid of two very much beloved characters that made Alien so well. Yeah. And one of them is Hicks. It's like the movie never recovers after that. And that's a bad call. But a that's minute a, that's into a the conversation movie. for another for day. Later. But. Yeah, but Hicks is so good. Newt, as the 
the young actress playing Newt, and it's her only movie, which... Yeah, that actress never, you know, plucked out of thousands, yeah. never did a movie before, never did a movie since, but was absolutely the right kid for the job. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it's... It, well, like I said, everyone is awesome. Paul Reiser, who was a comedian yeah. at the time, is, is... Really good at sort of playing yeah. as the sort of transparently sleazy company man who you want to believe, but no, you can't. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's... It's it's amazing. Um, I also would recommend there is a theatrical cut, which is of course great. But mm-hmm. if you can get a hold of it, get the two thousand and I think thirteen. Is it? There's an extended cut. Yeah. If you also watched it air on television, interestingly, they had it, yeah. when they aired it on television, there was scenes included that weren't in the theatrical. Yeah. I don't know if it was because of the running time for it, it was on TV or if it was because of what they had to cut, but. We saw a little bit more of the colony before it gets overtaken by aliens. Yeah. And we saw, you know, the uh, mercenary, the military guys set up these sort of automated gun turrets that fight off a wall of uh, aliens. And we watched them sort of slowly run empty after a wave of wave of aliens. Yeah. No. Story story goes is that then this is before multiplexes existed, that it was still just very much movie theaters and they and they were trying to get away from the three hour epic and if you're gonna make a sci-fi thriller yeah. it was two and a half hours long with the scene involving Newt's father getting impregnated and also those automated transmitty guns or whatever they were the amazing sequences and it adds to the movie I like the extended scenes I do but I do think because he consciously waits a long time to give you the monster yeah the added scenes add to that a lot of the stuff that's added are, is in that first 40 minutes where mm-hmm. you're kind of some people might be anxiously waiting for the aliens to show up. Mm-hmm. I don't mind it there. Of all of his quote director's cut, it's the least extraneous material. Yeah. A lot of the times, like for instance, the director's cut of The Abyss, mm-hmm. some of the stuff he added arguably hurts it. Yeah. I don't think that's necessarily a problem here. Yeah. In this case, more is more, but not necessarily distracting from it. But um, I don't know. I love aliens. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I think the horror movie aspect work, part of it is Newt. Part yeah. of it is the idea of that little girl living by herself in yeah. that situation for however many weeks it was. Mm-hmm. And when she gets stolen by that queen, when they're cutting through the fence and things get quicker and quicker, there's a great gig, yeah, the, device the they have of the motion capture device so mm-hmm. they can sense that a creature's approaching like, yeah. uh, with this sort of high-pitched whine. It, yeah. The tone keeps increasing. The sound in that is amazing. Such a terrifying scene. And when you realize that Newt is down there alone with this massive creature, and there's no way they're going to cut the great long enough to get her. Yeah. It's a horror movie moment. Yeah. Jim Cameron's good for that. Like, I argued when Paxton and I reviewed Terminator, yeah. that in a lot of ways, Terminator is as much a horror movie as Oh, it's it a total slasher, slasher film. It's a slasher film with a killer robot. That's yeah. what some people tend to forget, that it's literally... You could add Jason Voorhees in that role, and yeah. it would be a, a, an adequate Friday the Thirteenth movie. He's a to- it's a total slasher film. Yeah. Cameron knows how to do horror movies. A case can be made against me including movies like Predator and especially The Road Warrior on my list of favorite eighties mm-hmm. horror movies. Yeah. But I don't think I feel that guilty about the inclusion of aliens. No, no, no. It would also belong on the best you know science fiction movies of the eighties, but. Yeah. It's a horror movie. No, no. I mean, it's, it's, its main design is to terrify you. Hell and there are yes. many sequences that are just either unbelievably icky and, and repulsive or terrifying. Yeah. The sequence with those transmitty guns, I'll call them, yeah. where they run out of, almost run out of ammo. 
and then only for them to, you know, the aliens have figured out a way to get into combat, and the people haven't, and the humans haven't figured it out yet. Ollie, the guy, does that motion sensor that yeah. tell them that, you know, they're, they're coming closer and closer, and only at the last second do they realize they're how the they're gets, yeah. how, you know, they're essentially in the roof, in the rafters, and Michael Bean. I love that. that scene, too, but... Yeah. It's so obvious at the point that that's happening. The fact that Michael Bean sticks his head up in the rafters to look. Yeah. At that point, I think you would just open fire, but it's a great horror movie moment. And it is a horror movie moment. Yeah. I love that. But yeah, that tone is getting faster and faster. And it's like nine feet, eight, eight feet. feet. That's impossible. That's, that's, that's in, in the, the room. room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, and you're like, oh, no. Great. There's yeah. another... Uh, a really good horror movie sequence yeah. where uh, Ripley and Newt go to have yeah. a little quiet sleep. I was, gonna, I was just going to talk about that, but yeah. go ahead. Yeah, and uh, one of the face huggers is let loose in the room by the Paul Reiser character. Two of them, actually. Uh, right, and they they these two girls have to defend themselves against yeah. these very powerful aliens. Yeah. and uh, you know it, it's an incredibly intense, frightening sequence. Great use of puppets. Like apparently, it took like eight people to control that Worth crawling, it. crawling you know, face hugger. No, it, it, it once again it takes the ideas, things that we really found terrifying of the alien, and ramp it up, you know, five to ten notches. The, you know, the, we get another horrific scene. We don't see John Hurt get his face engulfed in the alien. We see more of that. You know, what these things are capable of, how it chokes you, chokes people around the neck, and then you know sticks its phallus, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> down your throat. Once again, that, that sort of horrific, you with its horrific sexual violent imagery. It reminds me of the, there's these birds apparently that will knock eggs out of other birds' nests and yeah. then lay their own eggs. Yeah. And then the bird will actually raise their own children. Mm. It's horrifying, but like worse than that in a way, in that the eggs are laid inside the bird and the mm. bird explodes when the egg hatches in this, in this version, right? Yeah. Uh, I really find that kind of yucky. Well, yeah, no, like this film really plays on the fear of childbirth in a lot of ways. It's just a weird, bizarre thing. It's strangely feminine. Oh, yeah. Well, both of them, but the, the aliens so much more so. The hive queen yeah. laying her eggs, the fact that when Ripley has that confrontation with her, she destroys her sexual organ, right? Yeah. Her birthing tubes, her entire presumably reproductive apparatus sack, yeah. is what she Uterus. attacks. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, once that happens, it's on. The queen follows them even on board the spaceship to yeah. kill Ripley. Another great puppet that was took about ten people to control. I love that that conversation that she has with the mother. The, it, it's nonverbal. It's all about the eyes and, yeah. and the and the face and how she you know she threatens the queen just by the you know the showing of the gun and how she positions it and it hisses and tells its underlings or children to back off. Yeah. Uh, and I like then, that the other high and, and she yeah and she's scared of the queen too. Yeah. None of them get too close to her. She's just she will eat her young. Yeah. yeah. And then when Ripley realizes that she's been betrayed by the queen, if you know, or you know, figures out that she's been setting a trap and sees the egg open up, just that look, the yep. tilting of oh, the head. Is that what we're doing? Yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. And off we go. Yeah. That's another great, great moment. And that queen is terrifying but yeah it's a very mother thing basically she lost her daughter yeah. in about 60 years she spent drifting in space yeah. Newt is very much a surrogate daughter and yeah. she enters her labyrinth to slay this beast yeah. to rescue her new daughter yeah. and when she confronts that beast and that beast they you know like I say she destroys her reproductive organs yeah. very sort of primal female rage yeah and that's right? also H.R. Geiger as well yeah well and part of the designs too I've yeah. said in the past that it's a 
a very female construct with a lot of very male yeah. physical affectations. Yeah. And I feel like uh, aliens versus predator has always been penis mouth versus vagina mouth, yeah. <laughs> yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. But uh, when we get uh, on board the ship and she escapes and there's a big explosion, mm-hmm. and it has been a full-on two hours and change action epic, yeah. I remember and will always remember the first time I saw this sequence. She gets out of the ship and... Bishop has saved the day. Mm-hmm. She was made to not trust robots, but yeah. this new robot, Bishop, proves himself to be trustworthy. Yeah. And they have this moment where they see and like each other for the first time in the movie and they ever. accept each other. And it's interrupted by Bishop being ripped in fucking half <laughs> by this alien creature. Yeah. And, uh, oh, no, we're not done yet. Yeah. I, like, I remember seeing that as a kid when mm-hmm. he gets torn in half. I could not believe what I was seeing. Yeah, like, yeah, it was I just, like... Oh, him gurgling all of this fucking white yogurt fluid all over the place. And yes. Like, oh my god. Synthetic <laughs> fluid. Yeah. No. It's it. You, you go. Whoa. Well, you know, one of the main complaints complaints about James Cameron is that he's great at ideas and actual storytelling. Even the films that have their issues, I really have their issues. And I'm looking at Titanic and Avatar, mm-hmm. two films that he's obviously known for and the highest grossing films of all time, have some unbelievably terrible dialogue. The man struggles at creating believable lines that real human beings would probably spit out. And because of movies like Aliens and Terminator... Aliens does not have that problem. It has... Which is strange because Cameron has written probably two of the most popular synonymous with him like just movie classic movie lines yeah hasta la vista baby being one of them but of course aliens boasts the other with get away from her you bitch yeah it, like apparently there's a preview they had a, they talked about this once again on, the, on one of the commentary where they previewed the movie and that line came up and the makers knew they had a huge hit on their hand when she said that line and people once again stood up and went yeah, <laughs> yeah. and just stood up applauding yeah. um, and it's a, it's a great it's a great scene great shot great line it's unbelievable um, and once again it's all about shot sequences and the use of puppetry it's well, amazing what I was going to say though is his success in movies like yeah. Aliens and Terminator Terminator 2 turns around and bites him on the ass because he's so successful no one will dare question him. Everything mm-hmm. he does is yeah. awesome. Is, is going to be awesome. Yeah. And I think he has lost perspective. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. His own madness, really. I think, kind of. From True Lies on, it's yeah. been pretty downward spiral for his mm-hmm. filmmaking. He's been more successful than he ever has in the past. But yeah. he has never made a movie as good as Aliens. And yeah. I kind of don't think he ever will unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Although this is one of those cases where, again, I would just love to be proven. So number fifteen, I've got do 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 some gremlins. Yeah, I mean it's kitty horror, but it's got some pretty pretty mean moments to it. 
Um, this it's movie did. PG thirteen had teeth in yeah. a way. Wow, it's, got, it's got fucking claws now. Yeah. So yeah, but like in the eighties, I will mention this in another movie that I'll bring up later. But yeah. the eighties didn't seem to really give a fuck about scaring the shit out of your kids, yeah. like at all. Yeah. Even in movies geared at kids, they would go a step or two darker than you would yeah. be expecting. Yep. Yeah. So I've got uh, I've got uh, I got the Gremlins, Mogwise and all. Interesting, I put another comically-themed movie here. Uh, it's in the same wheelhouse. It's ranked a little lower in, on the list than maybe it belongs in my heart, mm-hmm. but you already mentioned it, Night of the Creeps. Yep. I love it so much, and uh, yeah, it occupies that same similar area of Evil Dead 2. Uh, yeah. It's a really good time. They go hand-in-hand. Hand. They're yeah. very sweet little... Yeah, so we've sort of already talked about it, but again, yeah. Night of the Creeps. If you guys, anyone listening has not seen Night of the Creeps please do Go yourself see it. this service Go see it Yeah Okay 14th place This is when you're going to get really mad at me by the way Alrighty Well I know you didn't put this on your list um, This movie altered me Like after the end Once the end credits rolled I knew that I'd seen something that had broke my little brain mm-hmm. And it left such an ugly feeling And that's because And it's a pretty powerful movie and that's Cannibal Holocaust. Oh, really? Yeah, that movie. It's it's not boo out of your dark scary, but it's dealing with such nightmarish themes, and it's almost this is long before Blair Witch, so the sort of you know handheld camera, forced perspective, forced where you know this is decades before. I mean, it's not the whole movie's not all like that. Yeah, it's a horror movie, and I think it's it's a well made horror movie. It, it's something that. You might even hate it, but you I, can't. I kind of honestly find it a little bit distasteful. It is distasteful, absolutely. But, but that's horror. That's yeah. how horror should be sometimes. But I, Hellraiser is distasteful. It is, but they don't actually kill an animal on screen for yeah. you. Well, and but they killed several animals on screen for you in that movie. Well, they also and, kill an animal in Friday the Thirteenth. So yeah, it's true. And we're ta- and we're talking horror movies. I no. mean, it's a horrifying story. I'll even say that the. <laughs> the white people are far more evil yeah. and dangerous than the actual cannibals in a lot of ways. So it leaves an impression. Yeah, absolutely. But yep. I wouldn't put it on my. I've list. seen it three times, and all the people I've seen it with, you know, they just said, "I think I've seen something unholy." Yeah, and it's just wrong. Just, it's just wrong. wrong you so guys. yeah, Cannibal Holocaust is number fourteen. Okay, so this is where it gets controversial. When I was originally sorting the list together, we were talking top 20, and I put a bunch of ties in here so yeah. that it could sort of accommodate my list. Yeah. And then we just decide to retroactively switch it to yeah. top 25. So these two movies that I'm going to talk next talk about are going to you're like, what the fuck are they doing this high on the list? Okay. And what I'm saying is I want to represent for the 80s slasher movies. Ah. The obvious choice is what you've already mentioned, Friday the 13th. Yeah. I'm not going for Friday the 13th. I'm going for The Burning. (laughs) This is uh, the most archetypical slasher camp movie. The campers play a prank on a guy. He's set on fire, badly burned, dives into the lake. Everyone thinks he dies. And he returns to the camp to wreak bloody vengeance as supplied by Tom Savini. The acting in the movie's not that good. And the pace of the movie is strangely slow. But if you want to do some celebrity spotting and you want to see some of Tom Savini's finest sort of special effects works and you want to really know what the 80s sort of slasher genre felt like, The Burning is that movie. There are other movies way better than this, like lower on the list here, but representing for that 80s horror, I put The Burning 
there. Interesting choice. You know what? I, I can't say anything because I have not seen it, to be perfectly honest. Oh, really? I've, I've heard about it. I know that it exists. I, at one point, had it in my hands to buy and did not. It's the same level of film, I would say, as Friday the 13th. But so everybody I, knew Friday the 13th. I was going you know, yeah, yeah, trying to trying yeah. mix it up. I didn't want us to have the same list. As yeah. it turns out, that wasn't a problem at all, is it? Yeah. <laughs> okay, Mr. Beckman, what was your 13th uh, number on the list of your top 25 80s I, movies? I like my horror movies slightly crazy and to the left, my son. So at number 13, Stuart Gordon's... And the only Stuart Gordon film in this list, Reanimator. Yeah. I mean, it's essentially a very warped up version of the Frankenstein story in a lot of ways, mixed in with some Little Evil Dead. Once again, not really scary, but just totally bizarre and wonderfully gory and black, black comedy. Yeah. Uh, I also like, and I get, once again, I can't believe I'm forgetting his name, but it shows up in the front. Jeffrey Combs. Jeffrey Combs is off the hook, son. So yeah, I just Reanimator. Okay. Uh, solid choice. Another heartbreaking one. Like it was that, or I wanted to include that or another movie that is yeah. on my list, and yeah. I decided to go with the other one. But yeah. uh, uh, I love me some Reanimator a lot. Yeah. So we remember when I talked about the burning, I said that initially I had it tied. Yeah. So this movie is admittedly just artificially high on the list because it occupies. So this that. is a tie. You're saying. The, well, when I originally made my list, these two tied together okay. as like. Slasher movies that represent what the 80s slasher movies were to me. Yeah. The Burning represents sort of the camp, the Tom Savini, yeah. the typical yeah. thing. This selection, number 13, My Bloody Valentine, mm. is basically an ode to the hundreds of low-budget slasher and monster movies made in Canada yeah. throughout the 80s, capitalizing on the it's boom 81. created. Yeah. yeah, capitalizing on the boom created by movies like Halloween and Friday the 13th. Yeah. And it's really quirky. The acting's really weird, but it's got really good special effects, and it's a strangely vicious, vicious slasher movie. But yeah. it's kind of an it sort of occupies the same space as the burning. Mm-hmm. So these two selections, I think, kind of go together in my mind. Mm-hmm. So uh, controversial again. It probably should be towards the bottom of the list, really, if we're honest. But okay. that's how it played out here. It's oh, okay. thirteen. All right. I like it though. I do like it genuinely. Yeah. All right. So twelve. Number twelve. And I think... We're getting real now. Uh, this is probably the only sort of Steven Spielberg movie on this list. And it's not even really him, although... In co- theory, yeah. In theory, but controversially, Tobe Hooper's, Tobe, Toby Hooper's Finest Hour. And that would be uh, number 12, Poltergeist. Nice. Um, that movie, it's still scary. That whole tree clown sequence with the little boy is utterly horrifying. There here's a classic line. I, I'm I, I'm looking at you strangely, like you have not put this on this list. No, you'll, we'll be talking about Poltergeist again. Okay, so this movie is terrifying. Yeah. It's a terrifying movie. Fuck the remake on its ears. All I say. <laughs> okay. Sam Rockwell went a lot of ways to to help it go down for me, but no, it's it's not great. Okay. In twelfth position for me, and this is sort of what elbowed out Day of the Dead for me. Uh, I to make room for this, but I put George A. Romero's Creep Show. Mm. I'm a lover of Stephen King, and Stephen mm. King fucking ruled in the '80s, and we're yeah. on the precipice of Stephen King perhaps ruling once again. Yeah, and there was like other you know anthology movies like this. Cat's Eye was another Stephen King one, and mm. Twilight Zone and stuff like this. But there's something so crazy about the Creep Show movie, and mm. particularly the segment entitled "The Crate," yeah. really weighed heavily on my childhood. 
It's probably one of the things that kept me up and genuinely disturbed me more than any other horror movie. Mm-hmm. Not because it's like particularly scary when you watch it now, mm-hmm. but when you watch that when you're just a little kid and you have no idea what you're in for, <laughs> that, that was terrifying. It scarred me. Mm-hmm. So it ranks higher on the list for me than maybe it would for a lot of other people in 12th position. Okay. George A. Romero's Creep Show. Okay. What's well, a good movie. It's on my list. Alright, at number 11, I have the Wes Craven classic, and I think one of the greatest villains of all time, uh, the introduction of Freddy Krueger, which is A Nightmare on Elm Street. Nice. Is this movie perfect? By no means no. It, there, some things have aged quite terribly. I can't believe it took this long for an idea about a dream demon you know, laying waste to a whole bunch of teenagers. It, it seemed like just such an idea that should have been made. I couldn't believe they hadn't thought of it. It's yeah. such a great idea. And the aesthetic and mood of that movie is utterly chilling. Um, so yes, I have it number 11, Wes Craven. I think it is the only Wes Craven movie I have on this list, and that's A Nightmare on Elm Street. That surprises me, considering the praise you heaped on The Serpent and the Rainbow. Yep. I kept on waiting to hear that one pop up, but I'm thinking if it hasn't yet, it won't. It won't. In 11th position, which was very close to where you ranked it, we just talked about it, Poltergeist. Mm. It's one of the 80s sort of flavored family horror movies. Yep. Gremlins could be counted in this, yep. where it's yep. like meant for you to bring the kids, but it's yep. like probably way too scary yep. <laughs> for the kids. Um, yeah, I, I, I like it. It's a great nostalgic, and it's a very 80s movie. So mm-hmm. yeah, at 11th position. I don't suppose they uh, told you anything in Denver about the tragedy we had up here during the winter of 1970. I hired a man named Charles Grady as the winter caretaker. From what I've been told, I mean, he seemed like a completely normal individual. But at some point during the winter, he must have suffered some kind of a complete mental breakdown. He ran amok and uh, killed his family for the night. Well... You can rest assured, Mr. Ullman, that's not going to happen with me. <laughs> that's right. Mom, they really want to go and live in that hotel for the winter. Sure I do. It'll be lots of fun. The only thing that can get a bit trying up here during the winter is uh, the tremendous sense of isolation. Is there something bad here? I fear you will have to deal with this matter in the harshest possible way. Right, dude, I, I killed you with Danny. You did this to me. Didn't you? I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. the novel of The Shining, uh, we have the story of a recovering alcoholic, Jack Torrance, and yeah. his wife, Wendy, who in the novel is a very strong, very beautiful, blonde, buxom sort of heroine. And totally Stephen King's sexual fantasy, which I think is one thing that Sort of the, the perfect, beautiful, supportive yeah. wife. Yeah. And uh, Daniel, his troubled son, who yeah. uh, has some supernatural powers. Yeah. When they come to live at the... Uh, seasonally abandoned Overlook Hotel, the supernatural ability that is large in his son Danny and sort of a just a little bit inside himself sort of ignites the evil spirits of the Overlook Hotel and Jack Torrance specifically as played by uh, Jack Nicholson goes mad. Yes. 
that basic setup and those characters are shared by the movie. Yeah. But that is about all. Kubrick it's it's it's, it's definitely an, I, I mentioned this earlier. It's more an homage than it is an adaptation. The characters the and the setting are kept. Yeah. And that is about all. The basic structure, even I would argue, of the descent of madness. Yeah. It's like it, it's almost completely abandoned. He was interested. I think at the time he felt like horror movies were big business. Yeah. And we were getting a, like. loudly lauded the exorcist and the omen were huge and sort of considered films and he being a sort of competitive motherfucker you know said well i am stanley kubrick so i'm going to make the first truly epic horror movie yeah and he succeeds in making a truly epic and scary horror movie yeah while failing at adapting the story of the shining one thing that is utterly intriguing about this and kubrick was really more interested in realistic human horror not he was not keen on the supernatural you can make an argument that in that in his films that all these things are in the people's minds and not actually having to happening to them it's not actually supernatural spectral entities that are messing with them you could basically argue that it's almost a mass hypnosis that hits them and it's also to do obviously with hallucinations due to alcoholism and other sort of ugly things that has happened both not only to the father but to the family itself up until the point that the spirit unlocks the freezer I know that's the only thing that sort of gets in the way of that I think probably Kubrick relented at that point you could make the argument in the film again not at all in the book yeah in the book we have hedge animals not a hedge maze yeah and when you turn your back to the hedge animals they'll move and uh, there's a lot more into the history of the hotel and the descent of the character. I don't know if it was because the uh, very deliberate sort of chaos that Kubrick created in the production of Shining, Mm -hmm. he practically drove Shelley Duvall insane. She was Mm -hmm. literally losing hair and having Mm -hmm. panic attacks because he was so shitty to her. Mm -hmm. I don't respect that approach to work, but the results do show up on screen. Mm -hmm. Um, No, no, but Jack Nicholson, sorry. In the movie, to me, he seems crazy at the interview. Yeah. He seems crazy he, there's in the definitely, car. There's definitely danger and, and, and edginess to them, which is not the book. The, no, the the, no, the interpretation has, of characters are vastly different. Yeah. He definitely has an edge to him. He definitely yeah. has his demons in the book. Like the backstory of him accidentally breaking down his arm, which is covered, yeah. is taken from the book as well. Uh, he does have a lot of rage that he used to drown in alcohol, and now he's having to pour inward. Yeah. Uh, and he, he, he has got potential, but mm-hmm. he's got way more of a poker face and is way more of a genuinely loving, caring person mm-hmm. that we see get taken in by this hotel. Mm-hmm. Then the character is played very memorably by Jack Nicholson, who yeah. shows up. He's a crazy man when he gets there, and when he gets there, he gets much crazier. Yeah. No, it's a less Nich- Nicholson is art. way stronger in the latter half of this movie than the first part, just from the fact that it's, you know, it's hard for Jack to be, quote unquote, I want to say normal, but there's such a darkness and edg- edginess to them right off the bat of this movie that that journey is not as strong as it is in the book. Um, Kubrick's he, not interested in the supernatural, and yeah. more. Interestingly, he seems to be not that interested in, in the psychological uh, descent. He is interested in scaring the shit out of the audience. And I think I think he's interested. Well, what he's interested in is that the that the evil that men do. Mm. You know what can drive a person that that would be wanting a first sort of somewhat 
deeply annoyed and then wanting to end in a rather horrific way. Uh, There's nothing. How does worse. that man get to that? There's He's nothing worse not than interested a man. in the ghosts at all, and I find that that's what one of the things that make this movie memorable is he's very much interested in the psychological breakdown of this character. But he, it, it's not deeply explored. He goes, like I said, from crazy to very crazy, as opposed to a guy who's holding it together to a guy who's falling apart. Yeah. That would be my argument. But what I'm saying as far as his goal, I think, is primarily to scare us. Mm-hmm. Is The steady cam was a relatively new tool. It's one of the first point. movies to incorporate the steady cam. Especially to this degree. It, it yeah. was all over the place in it. And there's something about the space that he allows to the shots, the mm-hmm. space that he keeps between Wendy and mm-hmm. Jack throughout the movie, yeah. and the fact that there's a weird expectancy. Mm-hmm. I almost always feel like someone either is about to enter the room or someone has just left mm-hmm. whenever we establish anywhere. Mm-hmm. You're never allowed to relax. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, that's more the filmmaking than yep. the storytelling. It is one of the most hypnotic movies ever made. The, the pace of this movie, the editing of this movie, along accompanied by the music, it, it, it just comes at you in long overlapping waves in a lot of ways. And it just starts to really creep at you, yeah. which is one of the things that is so good about this movie. Um, but yeah, it is, when getting back to it, it's very different from the book in a lot of ways. And we'll keep on coming back to this. Yeah. Um, um, if you're a purist, if you love Stephen yeah. King, I understand why you don't like this movie, yeah. I guess. Yeah. But I don't think you could argue that it's not absolutely terrifying. So, yeah. Some of the shots in this movie are, are simply breathtaking. Um, I, I, know, I know we're jumping ships here a little bit. Uh, I was just sort of thinking about... Because Kubrick was known as a perfectionist. That's one of the things that he was notoriously known about. He was not uncommon for him to do like 219 takes... And an actor would be utterly exhausted. Well, and, like, they spent some serious fucking money. Mm. The exterior of the Overlook Hotel was built on a soundstage. I know. And covered in this terrible salty foam, apparently, that was eating up people's clothes and whatnot. It wasn't a genuine winter landscape. There was artifice that the actors had to work around all the time. Yeah. But it feels so genuine and so scary. Yeah. The you, you know, I like a lot of Kubrick's films, but yes. I have to say, like, I don't like how he gets there. Yeah. There's a famous story about Scatman Crothers, who uh, plays a man who befriends Danny because yeah. they share this shining, this psychic yeah. ability. Yeah. The scene where the two of them have ice cream together and he tells Danny about his ability to shine yeah. and to stay away from the specific room yeah. and, you know, basically tells him that he has this special little secret flashlight. Uh, they did take after take after take to the point where like 60 or 70 takes in Scatman Crothers was in tears mm-hmm. but Danny Lloyd the uh, kid mm-hmm. was a fucking rock <laughs> take after take after take he just kept giving it in yeah. that sort of repetitive little kid way like mm-hmm. what would drive an adult crazy this kid really locked into the little kid in The Shining is very good mm-hmm. and the wrong casting of that child could have undone this movie. Yeah. He is asked to have a conversation with his imaginary friend in a bathroom mirror. And it is fucking chilling. And yeah. it's just a child actor. Here's the thing that, that's strongly hinted at in the book that's not in the movie. It isn't 
and it's Tony, right? His Tony, quote, his friend. Yeah. Isn't that essentially him, just more in the future, that he is communicating with himself in the it's future? It's a projected sort of version of his older, more mature self. Yeah. A version that only exists deep in his brain that would be able to handle the situation. Yeah. Talks to him because he's too young to be able to handle the situation. Yeah. I love how it's realized in the book, too, as a... He sees like a little boy that's way, way down the street. Yeah. Who's sort of yelling at him. He can't really like quite yeah. see him, but he knows he's there and they like, communicate to each other. Yeah. It's very creepy. All of his this little kid shining stuff, how his brain is sort of shaping this ability is really better better explored in the book as you would expect. But yeah. made very frightening in the shining in, yeah. in, in the film. So as good as Nicholson, Nicholson is in the half of the movie and I agree Danny Lloyd is awesome in this movie and if they would have botched up that casting the movie would have failed completely yeah. but and this is controversial because she got a lot of heat when this movie first came out as um, just utterly awful and I think they missed it because I think what Kubert was doing with the casting of Shelley Duvall who I think is very good in this movie is I can totally believe uh, having this sort of almost deeply like it, she looked like she could be blown over by just a simple blow of the kiss or something and mm -hmm. a, a been, been to the, the ringer at least three times is the cat you just you believe the fact that this kind of waif this kind of woman would be would be attracted to a, a person who is a wife abuser and a child abuser in a lot of ways it, the casting is so dead on for what Kubrick was going for that I could not believe you know a very strong willed blonde blue eyed um you know, almost all-American girl, which is how she's almost described in The Shine. I mean, she's got some damage to her as well. But I really do think that that, that sort of... You like that change? I do like that change a lot. I um, think that uh, a lot of people would disagree in that... It's so she, different from the book. She's helpless because of the situation. Yeah. So it's kind of unfortunate that on top of being helpless because of the situation, yeah. she's kind of useless actively. Like... Mm -hmm. Once she fully realizes how crazy her husband is, like she just finds different places for her and her son to hide. That's basically what she's got. Yeah. But in the book, she fights back. She gives as good as she gets. Jack yeah. takes some serious hits, you know. Yeah. And uh, I, I think I would have liked to see more backbone. And I really hate the whole idea that Kubrick felt that he needed to be shitty to Shelley Duvall and make her feel like unappreciated and and really it'll make her almost want to quit being an actress. Mm -hmm. You know, she would, would have gone from being thrilled to being part of the Stanley Kubrick film to realizing that she committed herself to months and months of psychological abuse at the hands of a fucking sociopath mm -hmm. who just happens to be one of the greatest living filmmakers. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's necessary to do that. I think that if he gave direction, if he was able to communicate like a human being, he could tell Shelley Duvall what he wanted and she could have brought that for him. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't understand. I, I don't necessarily always think you need 900 takes to get it right. Yeah. But the argument made against this is you spend so much money building the set, casting your movie, getting to the point where you're going to shoot. So once you're there, shoot till you get it right. Yeah. I would argue if it takes 60 or 70 takes to get it right, that maybe the director's doing something wrong. <laughs> mm. But I'm not Kubrick, and I'm not here to wag my finger at Kubrick, because we're talking about one of the best horror movies ever made right now. <laughs> that scene with the doctor and early on in the movie, I think is so good, and there's, once again, so many levels to that performance and how that scene plays out. Shows you how good Shelley Duvall is with the whole 
she's making excuses for her husband. We've seen this scene in real life probably numerous times before. But as she's trying to make excuses for her, the ugliness of what her husband can do, yeah. that scene right then and there is so well made, so well done by everyone involved, including Kubrick. And I think she was unfairly maligned. Like, she got a Razzie Award for this movie. This movie was not loved when it was released, no? by the way. It's yeah. got its reputation as a classic, and I think it, it is. I think it deserves it. But, you know, much like The Thing, when we talk about The Thing, it took time yeah. for people to realize what they had here. Yeah. I think that they, you know, people who loved the book were pissed off that they didn't adapt the book. And people who were sort of Kubrick snobs sort of thought the material was beneath him. Mm-hmm. You know? No, um, I love the... Th- I mean, it's both in the book and in the theme, and I think explored a lot better in the movie, I will say, is that the ugliness and evilness of addiction. In, in, the, in this specific tale, it is alcohol and alcoholism that uh, helps destroy this tragic man in a lot of ways. There, there is some good to this person, and it's quickly washed away by the fact that the book is about alcoholism yeah that is the subject of the book yeah. more so than it is about a haunted hotel yeah I would make that argument yeah uh, it's something that's touched on in the movie and uh, the great sort of spiritual catalyst is still the, the you know the house bartender mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, you know he goes from sitting at the empty bar looking at the uh, you know the empty shelves wishing he could have a drink Mm-hmm. to you know one night walking in there and there's the full bar and a bartender waiting for him yeah. and instead of questioning it just embracing it yeah. because he's so relieved to finally be able to have that drink yeah. and not think about how fucked up everything is yeah. again that's just not in the movie yeah. the movie's there to scare you and when it scares you it scares you well burned into my retinas since I was a child Danny Torrance riding his three wheeler ah, in and uh, rounding that corner to see the two murdered twins. Yeah. Come play with us, Danny. Yeah. Forever and, and ever. ever. If yeah. that doesn't scare you, I think maybe there's something wrong with you. Yeah. Uh, Kubrick's propensity to have a lot of nudity in his films shines through here. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a sequence that does happen in the book, similarly, uh, Kubrick goes into a room that we know has got a bad atmosphere to it mm. and sees initially a quite attractive naked woman mm. in the bathtub and gets up and approaches him and they embrace and start you know fooling around mm. and then all of a sudden she transforms into this old ugly bloated corpse mm-hmm. and uh, that's more filled out in the book but as an isolated scene or moment in the movie mm-hmm. it is fucking terrifying and that is compounded by when he next sees his wife. Mm-hmm. We don't know how he got out of that situation or what happened. The fact that he doesn't register that anything happened and he just says that was an empty room. The fact that he won't have the conversation that he thought like conclusively there is something evil in the hotel. Yeah. Sort of solidifies that he is no longer the projector. Yeah. He is now the threat. Yeah. Yep. That's scary. Yep. Yes. Yes. There's lots of things scary about this movie. Um, one question I'm going to ask you is why do you think Kubrick killed off uh, Dick Halloran? Well, he didn't give a shit about the source material. Mm-hmm. And I think that he might have been right in that someone needed to die. In the Here's some spoilers for the novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, Halloran saves the day in the novel. The only yeah. person to die is Jack. Mm-hmm. And the hotel ex- 
it's a giant explosion ending that Stephen yeah. King seems to like to do in a lot of his books. I think that the climax of the movie might be arguably a more interesting end than Stephen King came up with. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting because uh, before I read the book, I thought it was just a Stephen King thing that people would travel great distances to be killed in his stories. It's happened in other movies, Pet mm -hmm. Cemetery being one that comes to mind, and it happens in more than a few. That, you know, he brings in an outside source who could be a potential savior only to kill them off almost instantly. Yeah. But that's not the case here with Halloran. In the book, he saves the day. He gets badly mauled by these, like, supernatural head creatures and the ghosts fuck with his abilities and his shining power. And yeah. He's changed by his experience at the Overlook, but he yeah. comes out of it alive and he gets in the snowplow and he takes them down the mountain. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the how they get out. Mm -hmm. Um it's not really explained how they get out at the end of this movie. The movie just kind of stops. The threat of him being gone, I guess, they're safe. Well, they crawl into the... Whatever. Snowcat. And, the, and they go down the path. Yeah. That's so... <clears throat> we, we do see them escape in the movie. But the hedge maze was a really good device. Yeah. And again, like, uh, an invention... A, I don't know how they could have realized those hedge monsters in the 80s. Yeah. And they B, couldn't. I think it's more psychologically interesting him literally chasing his son into this labyrinth and being outwitted by this because of his own madness yeah. and his lack of you know forward thinking mm -hmm. he is outsmarted by this eight-year-old mm -hmm. uh arguably stronger you know in the movie he's chasing them with an axe in the book he's chasing them with a mallet mm -hmm. uh, like a sporting croquet type mallet mm -hmm. uh and uh you know punching holes in the wall and just sort of screaming in a sort of repetitive stephen king way mm -hmm. there are things that i like better in the book and there are things that i like better in the movie so mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of mixed up in my mind mm -hmm. people obsess over this movie the way people obsess over movies like jaws you know yeah. <laughs> there's lots of layers to this movie yeah. Like I said, there's lots of, you know, lots of things going on underneath even the, the plot of this movie. Um, the one thing I'm sort of confused about, I mean, I know in the novel, the dog-faced boy is used far greater in the book than he is in the movie. He's almost like a, an afternote in a lot of ways. He has that really weird scene towards the end where he's engaged in some sort of fellatio with yeah. another ghost. Again, if you read the book, you get a whole backstory about this guy yeah. who's being sort of basically psychologically tortured by all these terrible people and gangsters that treat yeah. him basically like a dog and yeah. as a toy and yeah. uh, as a degenerate. And you just get an image of like these two guys basically wearing furry suits, going one's going down on the other one, right? Yeah. And the, you don't, they don't at, even try to make sense of it. Yeah. And because of that, it's kind of scary because what yeah. the fuck is that now? Yeah. <laughs> right? Random but comment time. If yeah, you've read yeah. the book, you can fill it out. But yeah. when you're just watching the movie, it's scary, but it's inexplicable. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you asked me forever ago, and I didn't properly answer why he killed Halloran. Yeah. Because he wanted to scare the audience. Yeah. And the audience expected him to show up and save the day. Yeah. And he showed up and got a fucking axe in his heart. Yeah. And his shining did not help him out of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. Anyways, The Shining is one of the most scariest films of all time. It is, like, if you were to do a top ten, top ten horror films of all time, it's on The Shining list. would definitely be there. In fact, a couple films from this list would be on there. Yeah. Um, I think there are so many great adult ideas talked about in this movie. And once again, it, I, I, I'm, I'm talking about thinking of Kubrick's film that explored the, the sheer evil that men do. It's like what evil can do and manipulates weak men is something that Kubrick is very interested in. He's also very, very terrified of the financially elite 
Uh, that's a common theme in his movies that he finds them both paranoid and scary. We see it in Eyes Wide Shut. We see it in Barry Lyndon. We we see it to a lesser extent in even Spartacus that he's very wary of the sort of economically elite and socially elite those those masses and what they can do to. I wouldn't say weaker men or weaker people, but they they cause a lot of evil and damage to the so-called lower class, if you will. That's that's a common theme. And here, I mean, they're literally evil specter. The this sort of paranoid, yeah. upper upper crap upper crust. I love the fact that Jack has this weird sense of deja vu that you know he's been here before and he's never left. He's part of this soul sucking society in a lot of ways. Well, and. The in the book, it's not really clear in the movie. They they can control him because of his alcoholism. They yeah. can sort of take advantage of this weakness and bend him to their will. Yeah. But the real goal is Danny. Yeah. If That's the get, book. If, if he kills Danny and Danny becomes one of the spirits of yeah. the Overlook Hotel, yeah. basically anyone who dies there is sort of yeah. enveloped into the overlook it becomes a much more powerful much more evil place yeah and I think that's the end game of the spirits in the book yeah in the movie the end game of the spirits is they're more interested in Jack yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's what a huge difference where the book the book is really about Danny and in the movie the movie is really about Jack well I think the book is about Jack too but uh, to an extent um, yeah his his descent is much more of an arc, as yeah. we discussed earlier on. Yeah. Um, and also, it's something to do. It's really disturbing in the book, and it's touched on in the movie as well, about the psychology of a man who, when he hits bottom, his impetus is to not, you know, check himself into a hospital. Mm-hmm. It's not to drink himself into oblivion. It's not even to kill himself. He goes to, I'm going to destroy my family. Yeah, I will kill my wife and I will kill my son. Mm-hmm. I I don't completely identify with it, but I know that there's an element of sometimes you can love somebody, but they also drive you fucking crazy. Yeah, where you have that swing between this is the greatest person in the world to can you shut up for two fucking seconds? And that's when and you can yeah. swing very widely, very quickly. Yeah. Same thing with little kids. You just love him. He's so adorable and precocious and charming, and then. He fucking spills ink on your manuscript and you just lose your mind. How could you do something like that? (laughs) But the idea of a father, the protector father figure for, you know, know, (laughs) words from the patriarchy, but that sort of thing, the betrayal of that Mm -hmm. uh, is horrifying Mm -hmm. and will always be horrifying. Yeah. It's the fact, something that's that's terrifying to me, uh, thinking about addicts, is the fact that they continuously poison their own bodies and knowingly do so and how it's and how that it goes beyond just poisoning them it starts to poison the people around them I think is done so well by Stanley Kubrick and it's something that a lot of people can identify with it because it is a horrific thing Uh, and you just that that that, he hit that note quite well I mean the book does the same thing but I, 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 I don't know any other horror movie that comes close to examining that subject as a horror film I think that in session 9 would be like a good companion piece in a lot of ways because they do the structure is somewhat similar we're all around a building that's very haunted that sort of feeds off of misery yeah and you know a a family is deeply affected by the evil that percolates in both stories it's yeah no The Shining is just and it's operatic as well I love the operatic nature of it it's 
Yeah, it's it will be there. there. It's there. The Shining will always be there, much like a lot of the Kubrick catalog. Yeah, but it is one of like the truly, truly great. The shots are so good in that movie. The shot with the steady cam. I just love the fact that he superimposed two things to create that maze shot, yeah. both of the apartment buildings, and that's actually Kubrick walking across with another person. The miniature. It's not actually um, Shelley Duvall and, and um, the actor Danny Lloyd. Lloyd. Yeah. It's actually him. It, it's a rooftop in New York, believe it or not, and they superimposed the maze over it. It's a very hyperly specific movie in how it is shot and designed to creep you out. Yeah. And as a as a sort of haunted house spoof fest, as a get under skin movie, yeah. you can't do better. But make sure you check out the book because the book is also it's fantastic. It's by far the, the most not adult film I think on this list. Like it, it's it's preys on your nerves, but it's also ultimately challenging as an adult. I remember the first time I saw this movie. I saw this movie with Neil Hendry, and I knew some things. I I couldn't fully grasp some of the things that this movie was talking about at the time, but it still utterly creeped me, creeped me out. Especially, obviously, the red rum part because I didn't I remember. I I didn't see it coming. Yeah. I'd forgotten about it, and then red rum, red rum, timeless. So ends part one of our 80s odyssey, but if you'd like to hear what the top 10 films of the 80s were, according to Lee and Larry, at least the scary horror movie films of the 80s anyway, you're going to have to tune in to that next episode. And I feel like if you've come this far, you'd be willing to come a little bit further. And bring a friend along. Tell a friend or another film fan about Rank and Review. I seem to think that it's kind of a good podcast. I've been doing it for a while and I'm kind of proud of it. And I would like to have a bigger audience and you could help me out by spreading the word. You could also help me out by sending me feedback at rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. We'll see you for part two and thank you so much for listening.